through 12. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 13 through 16, but I do want to step back, kind of regain, and recover a little bit of ground from where we were. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and starting back with an understanding of verses 9 through 12. Here the preacher, after discussing all that is done and going so much over this understanding of work, and if you remember, we talked about those who overwork and indulge themselves far too much in their work in contrast with those who refuse to work. Here we get down to verse 9 where he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And we spent a great deal of time last week talking about this concept of two being better than one. We saw this both in labor, where you have a better reward if you were, again, if two of us are working together in something, it's probably going to be much more productive. Um, how many of you have ever been on a ladder and you forgot to bring the hammer up with you or the paint with you? And so now you have to get back down and go back and get it. That's one of the more frustrating things in my life. I know what you're saying, Matt, you don't swing a hammer much. This probably happened once. Yes, it did, but it frustrates me. Right? The one time it happened, and I'll never let it happen again. But we understand where this is like, how much simpler it is to say, hey, could you hand me the hammer, and we have someone right there to hand it to us. So we see a better reward for our labor. And then again, we saw this idea of two is better than one, for when you fall, there is someone there to pick you back up. And we kind of looked at what it means to be both a person that does fall and is needing help, that does need someone to help pick us up, as well as oftentimes we're the ones that may be extending the hand to allow and to better aid somebody else. Again, the community aspect. We talked great lengths about how we are not to be isolated from one another. We're not to just be an island and everyone else is far away from us where we're completely removed from the rest of the world and from any hints of civilization or fellowship or friendship, but we are to be in community with one another. And then he continued there in verse 11, saying, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? This is the idea of a traveler, a person out wandering and in the wilderness and of being cold and how much easier it is to remain warm with another person that is there. When life gets cold, how often do you wish or want someone else to be there to help you? Because it's going to happen. And all of these things, these are not isolated incidents. These are not... Um, hypotheticals or just potentials or possibles. Things are going to be rough. You're going to have labor and you would like there to be two. You're going to fall down at some point. And how incredibly important it is to have another with you. And things are going to get cold and how greatly we need another there to help us be warm. And the final one, again, verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. Here we have this understanding of it's easier to fight off attackers with one another. How we are most prone to attack when we are alone. And I think if we were to go around the room and say, when was it that you felt most separated from God, most detached from those uh, apart in the body, whenever you felt most attacked in your life, there's a very good chance you were alone. Left saying, I don't really, I'm new to an area. Many of you, because I know what this valley is like, probably aren't from here. You're transplanted from somewhere else just like I am. This is a very uh, a town where people continue to rotate through. The turnover is very high. When you move to a new area, you start off largely alone. You don't have a community. You're left without great friends. The relationships you once had 
You're struggling to find a way to recreate them here. And you find yourself very prone to attacks where everything feels like it's coming against you. But then the moment you finally have a community, you have friends, you have family, you have someone to bear these burdens with you, how much easier it is to ward off and defend off these attacks. And perhaps the most important thing that we addressed this past week was this understanding that, again, man was not created to be alone. That when God formed Adam, he looked upon the man and said, it is not good for man to be alone. And then, again, we understand this is how Eve comes about. In addressing this crucial point that God at no point was ever alone. If you remember, I said when I was younger, I used to think, well, of course God created all of the world. Of course God created humanity because he was bored. He's just sitting there. And I even, uh, sort of jokingly, but it was also a real thought, right? God didn't have Nintendo, so he was bored. God doesn't play video games, so he had to be bored. But God was never bored. God was never alone. He was never, ever, at any point, lacking or requiring or needing something in life. He's always existed, and not just him by himself. We always, always existed, eternity past, present, and future, was the triune God of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so when he creates, he does so out of his desire and pleasure, not because he needs to. And this is so crucial. We've talked about the self-existence of God, how God needs nothing. And Tozer says, need is a creature word. Think about how many times we have said in our life, I need, and we fill in the blank. Very few times has it been something we needed. At no point has God ever required or needed something that he did not already have in and of himself. And this is why the Apostle John and 1 John can say that God is love, not merely just that God loves. Because there's tons of false gods that show their love. There's tons of gods that can love something, but none of them can actually be love. None of them can be grace. None of them can be mercy. They can only display an action in the same way you or I could show love, but am I love? Are you love? Of course not. Only God is these things. And so we close with this idea and this understanding as the preacher is putting it quite easily. Do not be an island. Do not remain alone. Do not be isolated from everything that is around you, from a community, from other individuals. It is an incredibly destructive process to be isolated, to be alone. Do you trust yourself to be alone at all times? Is it good for you to be alone at all times? How is your soul when you are simply alone? I could take my experience and put it on everyone else. I'm not going to do that, but I feel comfortable almost doing it and saying you probably are not the best version of yourself completely alone. We thrive in community. We thrive in relationship and even all of science that disregards the existence of a God completely testifies and attests to all of these things because we know this is how we were created. And he's going to continue again with a little bit as far as interpersonal relationships here this morning. And at the end, we're going to kind of double back and, and wrap it all up. But our text this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 
It says, Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king, who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun, with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have come before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the truth of your word, the power of your word. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you continue to show to us as we're able to, even just as simple as it is in this time, to be able to discuss the things of God, to read the very words which you have revealed to us that you had no need to do, but out of your loving kindness and mercy you you sought to reveal yourself to man. Lord, I ask that in this time as we walk through this text and others and and understand your power and your might and how beautiful and majestic you are this morning, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you desire and all that you will this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Here Solomon in verse 13 is giving uh, more advice on community and avoiding this isolation. He gives this picture of a child and a king, of, of wise and foolish. Where again, in verse 13, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Here Solomon brings the understanding and he knows that gray hair does not necessarily equate to wisdom. Now when I said gray hair, I wish you all could have seen it. Some heads popped up. He's talking about me. Did he just say I'm a fool? No, I didn't. But there's this understanding, and a lot of times it's, well, this person is this old. They've been doing it far longer. They must be more accurate, more correct. They must be more wise. That's not always the case. Is there great wisdom that can come from old age? Absolutely. But here he is drawing a parallel with this idea of young or of poor and old and wise and foolish but more so than just this idea that gray hair does not exactly equal wisdom. And again, no one please feel offended by this. But it appears he's writing more specifically than hypothetically. If you recall, as he writes these things, he's speaking purely in a lot of ways from observation. He surveyed the land. He surveyed all of these things. And he gives these very um, intimately specific pictures of individuals. If you remember um, from two weeks ago of the man who is overworked and doesn't even ask himself, for whom do I toil? Why am I working so much? I'm alone. I'm isolated. I have no one to share anything with. This is all that I'm doing and I don't even know why I'm doing it. A very specific situation is apparently what he seems to be writing about. And we see many pairs like this in Scripture of of a poor and wise child compared with an old and a foolish king. We see Nimrod and Abraham. We see Potiphar and Joseph, Saul and David, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. We see great contrast where just because you're older does not mean you have more wisdom. And just because you are younger does not exactly mean you're a fool. 
Now, for those of you that are older, that perked up on the gray hair and said, you better watch yourself, young man, okay? We're going to also flip this around for a second and understand that youth does not exactly equate to wisdom either. Because wisdom doesn't really have that much to do with age, does it? You can be a very young, wise individual or a very old, wise individual, and you can also be young and foolish, and you can also be very old and foolish as well. And so we see this in so many places in Scripture. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles over to 1 Kings chapter 12. Because again, as Solomon is writing this, he is speaking of a foolish king. He's not simply saying that he's foolish because he is old, but specifically he is an old and foolish king because he refuses to listen to advice. He refuses to be admonished. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, here setting the scene a little bit, and we'll walk through a few of these verses, we see a familiar person of Rehoboam. If you're familiar with Rehoboam, who is his father? Solomon. You remember, a month or two ago, we walked through this idea of, of Solomon saying, all of my labor is vanity. I'm accruing all of this. I've earned this status, all of this money, and here's the problem. I'm going to pass it on to somebody, and I don't even know if that person is a wise person or a fool. They could simply waste all of the fruits of our labor. And as a parent, and potentially as a grandparent, this is something that maybe many of you have considered. You're storing up and trying to give the best life for your child, or your grandchild, or anyone you're going to leave an inheritance to, just praying that they would be diligent and wise and good stewards of the things that you are leaving for them. And Solomon says, who knows if it'll be a wise person or a fool. And we addressed how uh, so much of, his, of the kingdom was lost when Rehoboam took over. And so here we see the son of Solomon, the son, again, of the writer here in Ecclesiastes. And there's an initial problem that is brought about where Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel are telling Rehoboam that his father worked the people way too hard. He says they were overworked. Their labor was far too much. But again, everybody, it appeared very prosperous. Everybody was seemingly doing well. And had all the marks of grandeur and glory and what an incredible community that this was. And so seeking the counsel of those around him, these older men gave him this counsel to loosen the yoke and then the people will serve forever. So we see 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days and then come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer the people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. So Rehoboam here hears this advice from the older men giving wise counsel, giving advice, the same way that they would have done for Solomon. And here's Rehoboam in his foolishness, says, okay, yeah, that's great, um, but I don't want to listen to the older men with this wise counsel. I'm going to go ahead and ask my friends. I'm going to ask the younger men. I'm going to ask somebody else. In verse 8 through 11, we see the, the counsel of the younger men. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, 
and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people, who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put on us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy. But thou, but make thou it lighter unto us, that shalt th thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lead you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And so the young men come along and say, You think it was bad how my father did it? This is going to be even worse. We're going to lay more upon the burden. We're going to make the yoke even heavier. Notice the direct opposites here of the advice. One, lighten the yoke and they will serve you forever. Compared to, you think that was bad? Watch what I'm going to do. The son of Solomon, right? Charging in and apparently all this wisdom. And then we see his response in verses 12 through 15. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Again, essentially word for word with the young counsel of the young men. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spaketh by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Here this is fulfilling a prophecy that the Lord through this prophet had spoken unto Jeroboam that this is actually all going according to plan. Very specifically. And so we see Rehoboam hearing advice on both sides of the older wise council rejecting it and saying, now nah, I think I'm going to make them do more. Because again, they were prosperous. He wanted more. And a ruler that says, if I make you work harder, I'm going to get more. Completely self-driven. And later on, we see the result of this, where the ten tribes of Israel split off. Ten tribes rebel, making the northern kingdom. Two tribes remain as Judah and Benjamin, forming the south kingdom. And here we get this incredible uh, split there. And one thing I want to draw the attention to, verses 20 through 24, and then we'll, we'll step back into Ecclesiastes here. Verses 20 through 24, And it came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. So now we have the kingdom split. Now Jeroboam is king in the northern kingdom. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam was come unto Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, and hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men, which were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So here we have the kingdom split. We have ten tribes versus two. The two being Judah and Benjamin, which have the, the line of David all through these two tribes. So people are splitting, and the northern kingdom is saying, we have no inheritance through the, sons, through the inheritance that comes through David. We have no part in this. So they rebel and they split. And now we see Rehoboam gathering up an army from these two tribes 
for essentially a civil war. We're having a traditional north versus south kind of battle here. He's gathered up 180,000 soldiers to fight these battles. And then we see verse 22. But the word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearken therefore to the word of the Lord, and return to depart according to the word of the Lord. So here, the Lord tells them not to fight his brothers, for this is from me. Do not go and fight. And if we were to continue on to chapter 14, which we won't do this morning, Rehoboam obeys until the kingdom is strong enough again. And then in chapter 14, we see all of Judah abandoning the law of the Lord, chasing after false gods, engaging in idolatry again. All coming from a rejection of wise counsel. And so we see this again as a very familiar passage where counsel was ignored, where we have a king refusing to be admonished by the wisdom of good counsel, but yet we also see a foolish king who takes his counsel from a fool. Because it's one thing to say, I refuse to listen to counsel, but it's another thing altogether to only take counsel from those who are fools. Who do you listen to when you're making decisions? Who do you seek counsel from in times of trouble, whether it's an instance with work or a family issue? or a spiritual issue, where do you go for counsel? Because it's easy to go to those that are closest to us, who may not actually understand the Word of God, who may not have wisdom from the Word of God, the only place where wisdom truly can come from, and to go and to say, I'm seeking counsel from one who's going to, to play upon my frustration and my anger. Because we all have friends and co-workers and family that do this. We're stressed, we're anxious over a particular thing in our life, and we share it with them, and they go, yeah, that is ridiculous. Stoking the fire that's already there. How many times has that helped you in the situation? What wisdom is there to preying upon the base instinct of fallen man to just be angry and to complain? But this is so often the popular counsel. Yeah, you should be upset. Yeah, you know what you should do is go get him back. If he smacks you in the face, you know what you should do? You should punch him in the face and kick him when he's down. Because again, we're Americans. We have to win everything, right? There's no equality here. We always have to one-up. We see very clearly from what Solomon here is writing, what we see from Scripture, that wisdom is not always gathered with age. Also, that wisdom is not inherited. Again, Solomon, wisest man that ever lived. His son... Incredibly foolish. And so for those of us that could sit back and we could say, you know, we're very happy and content with our wisdom. We're thankful to God that we have wisdom. We must understand that we pass on a lot of things to our children. That's not something that's inherited. They don't inherit wisdom. They don't inherit so many of the things that we wish we could give them. Because there's a lot of genes we wish we didn't actually give our children, right? Man, and you know, if I could keep these couple of genes back, that would be great. Um, one of the things that I'm lamenting is the fact that my family history uh, essentially has no hair. 
past a certain point. I'm the only one in the family left just fighting for life in that department. Which is why I need a haircut right now, but guess what? I'm going to lose it all later. Let me enjoy this. Okay? And some of you testify to this, too. I know it's all coming, but how much we long to give our children, to impart to those after us, the wisdom that we actually gain through bad choices and bad experiences. How many times have you said to a young person, family or not, I just don't want to see you make the same mistakes I did. That's all that you want for a younger person. And yet we know they won't get it until they actually struggle with it. Wisdom is not always gathered with age. It's not inherited. It's also not proud. Consider how much of the language Solomon has been saying, and I retained all my wisdom, and I was the greatest under, and I had all of these things, but failed to actually implement and to apply this wisdom in so many ways. The person walking around telling you how wise they are is likely not a very wise person. The fool is proclaiming themselves to be wise. This king here in Ecclesiastes no longer knew how to take advice, and we address this a little bit here, as Matt brought up in the Sunday school, that we're in a very dangerous place when we believe that we are past learning anything, especially when it comes to doctrine or a study of the Word of God or to knowing more and more who God is. When we say, I've already arrived, I've perfected my theology, there's nothing left for me to ever gain or to learn in greater depth. Paul continuously said, not as though I have already attained. A consistent humility in all of these things. And much like the king, a refusal to listen and to learn is a trademark of a fool. But not many of us have ever heard a person walk around telling you that they're a fool, right? People tell you how smart they are all the time. Maybe it's just the people I've interacted with a lot. People are quick to tell you how smart, how wise they are, but no one comes up and says, man, you know what? I'm a fool. It's usually after proven to be foolish that people can often see this. Verse 15 speaks to another king who leads a, a large number of people, and we'll quickly pass through these two verses. But it says, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. These new generations will not appreciate the new youthful king. One commentator has a paraphrase of verse 16, and it says, Though wisdom can bring a poor man to power, he too is quickly succeeded and forgotten. How many stories in Scripture do we see a man who is poor, who is without anything, essentially a very lowly person, much like King David, rises to power, rises to prominence, and has all of these things, rules as a good king, and what happens shortly after he leaves? Completely forgot, because the next generations don't really cling, because that's old-fashioned, right? I know things worked this way in the past, but we want to be progressive. We want to change. We want to do things differently. And how often throughout all biblical history, we see one generation serving the Lord and the next 
forsaking him and chasing after false gods, things, again, being brought back into correction through rebuke, and at times very, very harsh rebuke from the Lord. And yet again, the cycle continued. And now I want to step back here for a minute, uh, and rather than going into chapter 5, and I want to conclude kind of wrapping things up, because as we've seen all through chapter 4, we continue to see this, this great contrast and we see a continued lack of focus always on the things of God, a contrast of a poor and wise child this morning and an old and a foolish king. And it's easy to go through Ecclesiastes and say, man, this guy just doesn't get it. He's chasing after things that aren't going to satisfy him. He can't make sense of anything. I mean, this is probably the twelfth time we've seen that it's all vanity, that it's vexation of spirit, that it's all meaningless. Again, four chapters of this, it starts to kind of wear on us a little bit, doesn't it? And say, how do you not get it? There's so much more to this. But to close, I want us to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because as we go through Ecclesiastes, I want to keep in mind the beautiful reality of why it is that some of us are able to address what we see in Ecclesiastes with such an angst and such a, uh, I guess, a holy frustration in a way of saying, but you're not right about all of this. It's not vanity in all of these things. There is something far more than what you perceive. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, again, he's speaking to Christians. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, writing to other believers. He writes this in verse 12. That at that time, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a very despairing condition to have been placed where he is reminding them, though now they are, are believers, though now they are saved, of saying, do you remember who you once were? You were separated from God. That at that time, you were, you were without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. And maybe this one gets you having no hope and without God in the world. This is the condition of every person apart from Christ. And is the former condition of every person that is now in Christ. And I think it's important not to always dwell upon this state for the Christian, but to be reminded, again... This was what we have been saved from. This is who we were, separated, cut off from God, strangers, having no hope. Doesn't Ecclesiastes sound like a person, in many cases, with no hope? How hopeless it is to try to live in a world apart from God, where you can't make sense of anything that happens. All you see is despair. There's no hope to get you through any despair. It says you were separated. Verse 13 but now, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. As but those of you who were far off, you have now been brought near. What a beautiful picture of redemption and of salvation. That at one point, every person, some of us here even now, were far off. 
But you have been, because of those who are in Christ, you have been saved. You have now been brought near. This is what it means to be welcomed into Christ. The good news of the gospel that once far away, you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Is that a very troubling thought to be far off from God, to be separated, to be cut off from God? There is no worse place to be. I, I promise you this. But those of you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's, he's telling them that these people, that at one time they were loved without even knowing it, without even realizing that they were loved, and that the God that they ignored sought them as a shepherd seeks after his sheep and has been bringing them near unto himself. Versus God so loved the world that he purchased the undeserving. This is the beauty of the gospel, is that no one came to Christ saying, okay, God, I figured it all out. I've perfectly fulfilled and obeyed all that you've commanded. I've perfectly kept the law. I am now deserving of your love, and because I deserve it, I'll take it now. Every person that's ever come to salvation absolutely knows we're undeserving. Wholly undeserving, not just a little undeserving completely undeserving. Christ was forsaken so that those who were far off would be brought near, would be forgiven. Think about it. You have been brought near to God. And you were far off. It's not as if you were in the same room and he just walks over and sits down next to you. Far off, now brought near. Just consider how happy a child is whenever they are actually brought near to one of their parents when they're far away. How simple and basic that is. But in the same way now, those who were far off and have been brought near through salvation in Christ, we now call God Father and praise Him. What happened? What's the difference? The answer is very simple. Many of you understand this and you know this. We call God Father, and we praise Him simply because we've been converted, we've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we absolutely know this. Though there are some this morning that, that don't call Him Father and haven't experienced this idea, this understanding, this reality of being brought near, the reality is you're likely still very, very far away. Only those who are in Christ have been brought near. There are many that are still very, very far away. And this is why, as we see Ecclesiastes, and we can read it, and we can sympathize with it, and we find ourselves looking and saying, I understand what he's saying. This is exactly how I feel. I'm not even arguing with the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. There's a very good chance you are likely still very far away. This is why everything is so disconnected, why songs are completely meaningless, and that when it's the time to pray, we sit quietly and just think about ourselves, because what else are we to think about? Songs talking of the mighty works of God, or reading in a psalm, and we see it and just say, okay, it's a bunch of words with music, great. And it means nothing to us. We are very far away. And in an age of 
in a culture where social justice is the biggest thing and all these divisions are placed and all these different distinctions and everything that's not gospel-centered is caused as a distinction, the most crucial division this morning, not just in our church, but in any church, in any gathering of people, in any place in the world, is not one of race or of age or political opinion or interests or hobbies. The most crucial division is those who have been brought near and those who remain very far away. I I care very little for your political points of views if the salvation issue is not addressed. Consider what majority of our conversations take place over all these differing distinctions, never distinguishing the gospel. The distinction being those who have been brought near and those who are still very far away. And so scripture is very clear that again, as he walks through this and he he gives this understanding that at one time you were without Christ and having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. It's those who have repented and believed. It's amazing how simplistic the gospel actually is. But simple doesn't mean it's not deep or powerful. It's very, very simple. But pride, sin gets in the way, which causes a person to reject those things that they know are true. And says, I can't repent of my sin. Either A, I don't think I'm sinning, or two, I enjoy my sin so much, I'm not willing to give it up. And I don't want to believe all this God stuff. I don't want to believe in all that God has commanded and required of mankind, calling all of creation to repent and believe, because I simply don't want to obey. And all the scripture, even the words of Christ, is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Scripture tells us to put to death our sin and to flee from it, and not just flee from sin, but what are we fleeing to? Fleeing to Christ. It's not a flee from sin. Now I'm running somewhere very fast, very furiously, but I don't know where I'm going. Naturally, if you are fleeing to Christ, you will flee from sin. But yet so often we see sin behind us and we're looking at it saying, okay, I need to flee from this, but where to? And we're constantly caught back in a loop, finding ourselves right back there and saying, man, I keep forgetting how to get away from this. I don't know where to go. We must put to death our sin and flee from it. And to close, I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer this week, and he was telling about a time that he was preaching and speaking in Ohio, and for some reason he said, Ohio of all places. Um, but if you've been to Ohio, you, you know exactly what he means. There's no reason to be there. It's true. It's really true. But he says, he gets to the end of the sermon, and as he's closing, and the service is over, and there's a nine-year-old boy that comes walking down this aisle, and he is walking down, and he is just shaking and trembling. And if you've listened to Paul Washer, you understand that response, because he can kind of bring that out of you. But this nine-year-old boy comes forth, and he is shaking, and he says to Paul Washer, as he asks him what's wrong, he says, can God save a wicked boy like me? And he says, what do you mean? Like, what, what is it that you did? And he said, 
I disobey my mom. I don't want you to laugh or kind of snicker at that idea. Because that nine-year-old boy understands something, and God made very clear to, her, to him something that I wish every one of us was very clear on. But sin was real to that nine-year-old boy who understood simply disobeying his mom was enough to damn him to hell forever. That one sin is enough. Is this how you view your sin? Because it's one thing to say, well, you know, I think of my sin and I go, you know what, we all sin, so it's okay. It's not okay. Scripture isn't telling us to put to death something that's neutral or that's okay or allowable. One single sin, even one that we would think is so simple and really not that bad, like disobeying a parent. This boy was shaken over, trembling at the very understanding of how great his sin is before God. The holy perfection of God, knowing at nine years old that a single sin is enough to condemn him. Because it doesn't match the perfect, spotless righteousness that's required. And so this morning, I'd like to encourage all of us to view sin in a very similar fashion where we see it and we hate our sin. We're called to hate our sin, to put it to death, to absolutely be troubled at the very thought where the Christian, because of how we have repented and believed and what we know is true of who God is, we hate the very thought of our sin. Do you hate your sin today? Because for many of us, it's kind of this friend that is always along with us. We don't really like him, but hey, we live with it. We deal with it. It's okay. That is the very thing that put Christ on the cross that he took the punishment for. And again, in Ephesians 2, where we see this, the reality of our sin, of all man's sin, is that it separates us from God. And earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, we see our state apart from God, apart from the gospel, apart from salvation and redemption. We are dead in our trespasses and sins that those apart from Christ will be left and will remain dead in trespasses and sins forever. But the good news and beauty of the gospel is when it says, but God, and it talks about his love and his mercy and sending forth his son to die on the cross to atone for sins, or says, but now you who were once far off have been brought near. God is bringing a person near to him through salvation. If you are a Christian, you have been brought near by God now positionally in him? There's no distance between you and God? Do you rejoice in that truth? So I'd like to ask Mrs. Pace to play and just offer a minute to think about these things, to consider the language again in Ephesians 2 of those who were far off have now been brought near. If you have been brought near, if you have been saved by grace, through faith alone in Christ, and all that the gospel requires. Rejoice now in, in a time of thankfulness for the mercy and grace of God that you have been brought near. And for those who maybe have no understanding, who, who hear these things and who sing, sing uh, songs that have no meaning, and when we see all of this, it's all meaningless that we haven't 
been brought near, that we're still very far off. I'd like to encourage you and call you as Scripture does to repent of these things, to repent, to turn from sin, and to believe in what Christ alone has done and has accomplished. Because it's very, very clear. Apart from Christ, we are left dead in our sins. We require new birth. We require being born again. And without that, all that man has left is condemnation. But as Romans 8 tells us, those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And what a beautiful thing that the gospel is, that God in his loving kindness sent forth his Son as a propitiation for our sins. Where he who knew no sin became sin. Bearing the cross, bearing the burden, bearing all of the shame, all of the sins of the world. And as many of you are familiar with, for God so loved the world. And in all of this, God, through his word, calls men to repent and to believe. The beauty of the gospel is that it's all of grace, that it's absolute unmerited favor. How beautiful it is to know that God did all that he did in salvation when we weren't even looking for it. How beautiful it is to call him Father, to cry out to our loving Father who has done more than we could ever possibly imagine. Forgiveness of sins. Completely taking away our sin and all of these things. And when he looks upon his child, he sees a child of God completely covered in the robes and in the righteousness of Christ who perfectly fulfilled every single command with active and passive obedience in every single way. Never lose sight of how truly beautiful that that is. And what a beautiful thing it is to know that for those of us who have trusted and have believed upon Christ's work alone for salvation, that we have incredible evidence of this in our life as we, we know the Spirit of God lives in us. We've seen the change that we absolutely know who our God is and what He's done and the joy that comes with it. And we are able to look forward to the very day of faith becoming sight, looking upon the very face of God, seeing Him in all of His glory the way that He ought to be seen. How beautiful that is going to be. But also understanding the reality of where we are now. We are in Christ, that our position is in heaven, that here we are passing through. What a beautiful truth that that is. I'd like to invite everyone to stand as we sing our, our closing song, and I, I hope that it is one that